This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So, you know, I think back to earlier in the year and all the sort of time and energy that we were all spending on the Uber IPO. I feel like WeWork is going to make that look like child's play because this one is even more complicated and candidly like full of drama. Right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's a business school case study. Absolutely. It probably someone's probably working on that already right now. Well, We've got a crew of reporters who have been just following every turn of this, breaking a lot of news. Michelle Davis is one of them, finance reporter for Bloomberg. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And part of the team as well is Ellen Hewitt, also breaking a lot of news, startups reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. What's going on with what? Like, why all the drama around WeWork? Because a lot of it seems to go back to the founder. Well, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of things have changed in just the past week. As you mentioned, it seems like every day we're getting a new piece of news. And the the big important thing is that valuation expectations have changed. But Adam Newman really wants to go ahead with an IPO. And so overnight, you know, we got the, the news that his even his banks are kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? At $15 <laughs> billion dollars. Like, you know, it might make sense to wait or do something else. And Adam is like, no we're going to do it. Um, And so that's really what it is here. It's like, you know, the struggle between do I really want all this money if it means, you know, possibly losing control or do I want to like, you know, keep my like startup private founder status, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm also, I love the SoftBank angle to that. Remind everybody about SoftBank. I mean, they've got big exposure to WeWork. They do. Yeah. And uh, when they invested earlier this year, it was at a $47 billion valuation, which, you know, right now the talk is around $15 billion. Just get your head around that. Almost $50 billion. And now we're at $15 yeah. billion. Big yeah. difference. Those are those are two very different numbers. Right. So in order... <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, very much. Okay, Math 101 I know, is over, I know everybody. Math. I, I know math. <laughs> I know math, too. Um, no, but You know math better. <laughs> no. Let's bring in Ellen Hewitt, because let's talk a little bit about um, the startup world. Ellen, what's going on here? What are you hearing? There you are out in San Francisco, our 960 <laughs> studio. Um, I'm curious what the Silicon Valley uh, community is saying about this. I think this is going to show up as a a great example of the tensions inherent in having a company where one person has so much control. Um, uh, Adam Newman, as the CEO and founder, has, um, you know, a particular... A particularly uh, strong grip on his own company. This company has a, not just a dual class, but a triple class stock structure with class A, B, and C, A being uh, shares that have just one vote and B and C having 20. And um, Adam owns or controls all the shares in class C and most of the shares in class B. His voting control is uh, like um, most of the company. And so even if he doesn't own most of the company, even if SoftBank, for example, as a major investor, owns a significant chunk of the company, he is the one who makes the decisions about how the company is going to be run. Uh, and, and this is something that has, over time, become more popular in Silicon Valley. 
uh, common examples include like Zynga, Facebook, yeah. Snap. Um, these are all names that come up when we talk about these dual class structures. Um, I think WeWork is just an example of that at, at perhaps even a more extreme scale. And so we're going to see maybe this is a turning point where investors and um, you know, people who are advising these companies are saying, like, look, maybe it's not worth it to have this concentration of power. If in the end, when you try to go public, you end up getting all these concerns about governance, about conflicts of interest, things that have dogged WeWork in the last year as they've been preparing to go public. So, Michelle, it, it, so many points to, to bring up. And I want to go back to something you alluded to at the top, which is this idea of the banks essentially saying, bro, are you sure you want to do this? I, which seems a little bit different, you know, that they have had some experiences now with IPOs not going the way that they wanted, that maybe they are pressing these executives a little bit more to try and set them up for success, which is out of enlightened self-interest because they want to make money, too. T- tell me about that. Obviously, yeah. Um, I mean, the banks have a lot riding on this just as much as Adam Newman does. Not only, you know, are they leading the IPO and they will look bad um, if it doesn't go well, but, you know, they also are on the hook for $6 billion of debt if, you know, on the condition that that WeWork is able to raise $3 billion. Um, And so, you know, I I think the bankers would say, and and they have been saying that, like, you know, there's, you can do this IPO, it's just going to be, you know, at a certain price. Like, anything, anyone will buy, like, something from Macy's at 70% off, but, like, do you really want to, like, you know, do an off, like, a clearance sale? Yeah. What I do, you know what I'm, I'm kind of thinking about is our conversation with James Gorman and Morgan Stanley yesterday. I mean, he, Morgan Stanley uh, led uh, the year's largest public, initial public offering, right? We're talking about Uber. Um, but he, we had a conversation with him about how markets kind of figure things out. And I do wonder if this is kind of the market environment, um, Ellen, in terms of saying, hey, startup, <laughs> here's what we need from you if you really want to play with the big big guys. Yeah, and, and that may also end up in, you know, when we look back on everything that's been happening in the last few months, that may end up being an indictment against SoftBank's role right. in uh, investing in WeWork, because as we know, the only new investor that WeWork has had since 2017 has been SoftBank. So it hasn't been going through the same style of fundraising that other uh, companies do, even at a late stage, where you you end up having to have multiple investors agree on a valuation. In this case, it was just one. So you could see that as as, um, also saying that, like, this got out of hand, in part because there, there was a you just right. didn't need to have that much due diligence from other people to agree on what ended up being a $47 billion valuation. Going to leave it there. Ellen, thank you. Ellen Hewitt, startups reporter at Bloomberg News. She is out in our 960 studio in San Francisco. Check her out on Twitter, as well as Michelle Davis on Twitter, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, we're talking Apple. We've got two cameras on the iPhone 11. We've got a watch with a titanium case that I'm expecting to soon see on the wrist of Jason uh, Kelly. Uh, I can't believe Charlie made me feel so bad about shopping with John. John Butler's a super cool guy. There's therapy for that, and, uh. and I'm just telling you. All right, and not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, John Oakman is anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. Uh, keeps an eye on the tech world for us. On the phone from Toronto, we've got a bunch of stuff. Uh, from Apple, John, yesterday, but uh, people are really kind of waiting for 2020. But what was important to you, you think, or of note uh, from the news yesterday? 
Well, uh, what's as as interesting to me is everything Jason said in the last three minutes. Like, I feel like there's like a, a, a weird Seinfeld episode of Bloomberg employees going shopping for Apple Watches. But but um, would you go shopping with Jason I, Kelly for a new I course, uh, new Apple I, Watch? Well, especially to see the, the dynamics between him and Charlie. I mean, this is this is like a spinoff show. For totally. At this point, I think. Um, so, Carol, I think at the end of the day, like. In the lead up to this, I felt like there were always going to be two stories that emerge here um, because we're, 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 we've got the Wall Street story on Apple and we've got the historic story of them holding these these fancy events. Um, we're now a dozen years. Let, let's just focus on the iPhone for a second. Um, we're now a dozen years into um, iPhone world, and, um, and and we have reached a point where the company has has turned to Wall Street and and basically said without saying. We are not going to see the kind of growth in sales of this device that we had previously said. Um, if that wasn't the case, Apple would not have stopped sharing specific iPhone sales numbers. They're, right. they're not giving them to us anymore. And they are shifting the focus to services. So yesterday's event, to me personally, felt like kind of a, a balancing act of those two worlds. It, it was... Uh, it was, sure, a, an opportunity to talk about the kinds of devices that hopefully people will want to upgrade to or, or cycle through to uh, if they're at that point in, in the life of their iPhone that they feel compelled to do so. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't track the minute-per-minute minute amount of time that was spent on everything, but there was I, I think it's fair to say they spent a lot of time on their Netflix service, on the Apple TV Plus service. And um, so you look at the numbers of Apple, um, which has consistently sold more than 200 million iPhones a year for the last four or five years and now has like 900 million plus in circulation. Okay, so maybe you don't convince, uh, you know, as many people to get a new iPhone, but you've got the big ecosystem there. What can the new services business do for them? Uh, they're they're going to roll out, obviously, at, a, at an affordable price, the, the Apple TV Plus service. Um Services revenue was actually at a record in the most recent quarter. It's like $11.5 billion, which is still small versus iPhone revenue. But I, I think that yesterday's event set us up for what Apple has become. Nothing too crazy, nothing too out of the ordinary, great products as always, and the hope that you get enough people in the ecosystem to keep buying right. and then increasingly get people to, 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 to go for the new service offerings. And so the stock is trading up, you know, a couple percentage points today. Is Does this just become sort of to your underlying point just now, John, just sort of a steady company that just needs to convince its, in, its sort of installed base to keep buying every couple of years? Uh, and, but at the same time, how does it attract a, a newer, candidly, like younger, higher spending audience? What products will ultimately appeal, you think? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people were talking about how they were they, they were trying to make more affordable prices, but uh, iPhones have never really been that affordable, Jason. Right. And, and I do feel like the competition's pretty fierce these days. Like, if you're going for um, best price phone with the most bells and whistles, it really felt like Apple, in a lot of ways, to be candid with you, was was playing catch up. Like yeah. the, the idea of the camera offerings that they've got that's that's already kind of out there already. I, but but I do think that. Um, they're always going to have a lot of things playing in their favor, uh, whether you can afford, afford an iPhone or not. Uh, the swagger that comes with the Apple world, um, you know, I think they're they're hoping that if you're within that ecosystem, you'll you'll, you'll stay with their products. 
Um, but I, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, this is a, this is the kind of thing that we learn after the holiday sales. You know who's right and who's wrong. You know they. It's not. It's not as if we can we can sit here after yesterday's event and and make a really clean expectation on on how many are going to be sold. We'll find out in 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 the early part of the new year. And, and don't forget, we started this year with a lot of concerns about how the business was performing, especially in China. You saw right. huge sell off in the stock, and then investors said, sort of, hold on a second. This company has so much money. They're being so shareholder friendly versus a lot of technology companies. We're going to come back to Apple, and so it's turned out to be a very um, uh, strong performer in the stock market this year, but right. we've been, we've had this back and forth, Carol. It feels like for so many years. Yep. What Apple Ex- truly is exactly. Thing. And meanwhile, you know, we parents are actually ponying up a lot of money for our kids to have Apple products. So it's kind of fascinating to see how that uh, passes down to other generations. John Ehrlichman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, being in Bloomberg's The Open. You can go your own way. They're definitely going their own way. We're talking about uh, alumna of Howard University. Because if you want to know where entrepreneurs come from, check out Howard. Peter Coy is economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Interesting story. Thank you. Yeah, it's part of the best B-schools issue. Mm-hmm. So they, the guys who put that survey together came to me and said, hey, you know, some, something kind of funny here. Uh, we look at how uh, we do a survey and we ask people if they started a company after they got their BMBA. And Howard, in the three years we covered, which is 2010 through 2012, um, surveys 49 people, 25 of them said they had started a company at some point. So that was the highest percentage of any of the schools in the 140-something that we surveyed. I'm surprised. Yeah. So what accounts for that? What did you find when you started uh, digging into it a bit? Well, I mean, first the caveat, which is that I don't know how much we can really read into this. It's yeah. a small sample. It was one point in time, albeit three years. And, you know, it could be that uh, they weren't representative or it's not that way anymore. But that said, I did talk to four uh, alumni just about their experiences with having started companies. I'm just kind of, it was a good conversation. It's not, first of all, that Howard puts especially strong emphasis on entrepreneurship, it's right? Unlike some of the schools that really do, um, Stanford being one. I mean, Stanford yeah. has a whole curriculum in yeah. entrepreneurship. And Stanford, by the way, also finished high in that yep. ranking. So, what is it about how? So, so were you able to sort of pull through any thread among the folks you talked to? It almost seemed to be more like who the students were, like going in hmm. the kind of uh, you know. Of course, first of all, we all know Howard. Historically black university in Washington. It's an uh, amazing uh, roster of alumni, produced some of the most prominent black uh, executives and people in all kinds of walks of life. Um, so they come in with a, a lot of pride and, they, and a lot of, a, of faith in their own ability to kind of do things in the world and a lot of desire to, to make a mark. And, you know, it's, it's kind of... Uh, exciting to to make a mark starting your own company and so a lot of them had family members who had been involved in companies and so it sort of just came out of their own backgrounds i thought it was interesting in in your reporting you said for howard grads entrepreneurship not exactly the path of least resistance so it's not like this was the easier route to go uh, exactly entrepreneurship is never an easy (laughs) route people become entrepreneurs because they have that bug they have that drive 
if you're a Howard grad, you and it comes to recruiting time, you actually have a lot of uh, opportunities because, like all the consulting firms, all the, the, the large companies are trying to recruit for racial diversity, and so they they recruit. Uh, Howard is a target school for them. So you'll have abundant interviews, and the people I talked to said, yeah, they had opportunities to go into the corporate world. Some of them did, by the way, and then mm-hmm. left. Some of them went straight into entrepreneurship. And so, you know, as you say, and we spent a lot of time uh, talking about business schools yesterday. We were up at uh, Columbia Business School. What was your sense of, you know, how the alumni that you talked to, sort of what they got out of business school? I'm going to be a little bit cynical here yeah. in the sense of saying, well, why would I, like, if I'm going to start my own company, what does going to business, what is spending two years at business school really get me? Is it network? Is it training? Is it, you know, sort of practical applications. Do you have a sense of that? So I didn't get an MBA myself, but uh, what, from what I understand, there are a lot Neither of, did I, for the okay, record. Okay. Nor did know, Carol. No. Real that. tools that you get. I mean, yeah. um, accounting, accounting seems uh, sort of prosaic, but absolutely essential if you're going to run a business, knowing how to read an income statement or write an income statement, balance sheet, cash flow. And then you have... Uh, Finance, how to raise money, how to spend money. What, what Carol? Well, it's interesting. We have a, a headline crossing, but it also relates to one of our conversations we had yesterday. Uh, the UK warning that supply chain delays uh, of up to six to month, up to six months if there is no deal Brexit. So if it's basically a hard Brexit, and it was leading me to what what you learn in a business school. We talk with the founder of Ziggy's, right, Icelandic yogurt, and he said one of the things, one of the courses he took was about supply chain right. management and how crucial that was when he ultimately like he I think when he was taking it he was kind of like I don't know am I going to use this but then when he started his company that was a big part of understanding how that worked all right so since we have this headline, can we shift the conversation a little bit? Because okay, sure. I mean, this your, your business school story is very interesting. But you know, we've been talking to you for months and months and months uh, because Brexit has been going on for this long. I mean, these are the real economic implications of Brexit, right? I yeah. mean, these are the things that actually affect markets. You know, the idea of supply chain delays of up to six months—crazy! That is the sort of thing that presumably you would start to see. In GDP number, I mean, you would really start to see that trickle through the real economy, right? Yeah, and that's why I'm a bit surprised that the UK economy has stood up as well as it has, right? And that the, the predictions are for continued growth in 2020. Um, I just went to a breakfast with Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, yesterday, and uh, he was one of the first people to really l- uh, lace into Brexit and call it a big mistake, and got some blowback over that. He's more circumspect now, probably because he learned, you know, he doesn't want to get tagged as a uh, politician. Right. Uh, but, it, but it also did seem as though, you know, he's saying, yeah, Brexit's a problem it could, because it could both slow the economy and cause higher inflation. But it's not, it's not the cataclysm, at least that wasn't the tone of what he said, right. that maybe some people had been thinking. I don't know. But it's like, you know, when you think about these big macro issues, whether it's U.S.-China trade, we've got stories on the Bloomberg that are looking into this as well, that, you know, it's impacting companies uh, certainly around the country. We talked to Sean Donnan, right. which is a story that's featured in the magazine this week. Uh, we talked about it yesterday on radio, and it's going to be in our weekend show. It's online uh, and uh, at Bloomberg.com. Just but, want to bring you a couple more headlines from the U.K. Just 
because it's really interesting that they're coming out and saying this warning of protest blockages over the Irish border disruption, mm-hmm. low income groups most affected by no deal Brexit price rises. There's another economic uh, implication and the UK warning of, quote, public disorder and quote, in no deal Brexit scenario. So, I mean, they are starting to really paint a picture as we get closer to this potential uh, hard dropout right. of that's, the UK. That's, a, that's the no-deal Brexit, yes. which still could be averted. There's no guarantee we're going to go out without a deal. Right, yeah. yeah exactly. I'm curious of where these are coming from. I know this is from the UK government, but I'm just curious. why The timing's pretty interesting right. as well. Yeah. Right. In All right, case. Peter Coy, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Several stories covered. That was pretty efficient. I know. Love this guy. He can do it all. Peter Coy is economics editor for Bloomberg this week. Also, just a little bit of a tease, got a great story in this week's magazine. We're going to talk to him about that a little bit later in the week. Carol and I got a sneak peek earlier today. I want to be rich. Well, the Yale Endowment, definitely rich. And the man behind it all, David Swenson, he is, no doubt about it, uh, a legend in the endowment world as well as the investment world. This story in the upcoming issue of the magazine online and among the most read on the Bloomberg as we speak. Writing that story, Drake Bennett, projects and investigations reporter, along with Janet Lauren, who reports on the endowment world here at Bloomberg, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Michael McDonald, also part of that team uh, in the reporting. So let's lay it out. Um, you know, Janet, we talked to you about endowments, Yale and David Swenson, no doubt about it, legends. Well, he's been there for 34 years, which is unusual in the length of his tenure. But if you look at what the endowment looked like when he started, it was a typical portfolio of how institutional investors invested, mostly stocks and bonds, a little bit of cash. And he thought about ways to improve on that. And what he was looking for largely didn't exist. So he found ways to create it. And now we have things called private equity and hedge funds and venture capital, which is a staple in the investment world, but was still fairly new uh, when when he was getting into it. And so, Drake, I want to ask you, you know, one of the things that really emerges from this picture is candidly an answer, a series of answers to the to the question, who is this guy? I mean, because he, he's been a little bit of an enigma. His model is well known, but he is not. What did you learn about him? Well, he's the, he's the product of a good kind of Midwestern Lutheran upbringing. Uh, his mom became a minister after raising her kids, uh, her dad, was, uh, his dad was an academic, and I think he had always thought that he would do something like uh, what his parents did. He did have a brief foray onto Wall Street, um, which you know might have become a career if he hadn't gotten this phone call from Yale to come back and run the endowment. But I think that time on Wall Street did kind of give him this window into the new options that a really rich investor had at the time, and Yale was a really rich investor that kind of wasn't acting like it at the time. And so part of what he realized was that uh, there are all these other things that you could invest in that would make a lot more money. Um, and part of his legacy, part of the reason we thought it was interesting to write about him is he's basically helped create the situation where s- these really rich institutions got a lot richer. Yeah. And sort of the gap between the haves and the half-nots, even in this kind of rarefied world, has widened. And it's you know largely because, A, he was really good at doing his job, and then he kind of seeded all these other endowments with his acolytes, and they now do what he does. I love this line in the story that he, I guess he, he's really adamant that most people in, my, in many institutions shouldn't try to do what he does. Yeah. 
yeah. like, hey, I've done really well, but don't copy me, basically. Yeah, yeah don't try this at home. Well, but, don't try this at yeah. home. But we also have a fun line about, you know, who can copy 35 years of the greatest scuttlebutt network. And, right. you know, people want to people manage Yale's money, and they'll do a lot of things to do it. And, you know, he he is known for picking managers, and they may not have a long track record, but they have something that he sees in them. And, uh, and and it's been quite successful. And, he and, that's, has, and that's what's different, right? They, the, he does outside managers where a lot of folks manage it all in-house. I well, think it's the... Oh, go, go on. Most, uh, most endowments use this model now. Okay. Harvard previously managed it in-house, and that was a big difference between the two of them. But he's looking... I mean, you guys point this out, and, and Janet, I, I, I'm really glad you made that point, because one of the things that does seem different about him is that you have a lot of pensions and endowments out there who essentially like, listen, I'll go with the brand names. Nobody ever got fired by giving Blackstone a bunch of money, whereas he really looks for, I think this is the quote you have in the story, for managers with a screw loose. I mean, this sort of identifying those people and taking those risks right. is not something you necessarily associate with endowment managers. And he sticks with them. I yeah. mean, he sort of famously will... He'll make these bets on really young managers, and he'll stick with them. And you know, part of part of the benefit you get with being David Swenson and picking a young manager is that you can negotiate the fees down right. and stuff like that, and that that helps. But it also there's a real he he um, he takes a, he takes his time making his decisions, and then he doesn't tend to question them. What does he make of uh, you know? I'm just curious. I feel like endowments have certainly been. Um, on everybody's radar, the endowment tax. Uh, you also see the student bodies, faculties pushing back more and more on an institution. Uh, you know what they stand for in their investments. Well, he—I I mean, he doesn't. He, you know, I, I actually went to this talk he gave that was interrupted by uh, these student activists who were protesting, who wanted Yale to divest from funds that had Puerto Rican debt and fossil fuel-related investments. And he basically just doesn't really engage in that conversation, I think. And the way he sees it, you know, he funding higher education is a, is a, is a, higher, is a worthy goal. And, you know, that's kind of the end of the conversation right. for him. Yeah. Uh, so, Mr. Janet, yeah. Yeah. Janet, last word to you. Are, are there other David Swensons out there, as Drake Bennett man- mentioned, and we've had them on this program? There are some acolytes, but will there ever be someone like him, or is he singular in your estimation? You know this world so well. Well, he's been doing this for 35 years, and he sort of created this model. And as we've talked about, there are other people who worked for him who now run endowments. Andy Golden was here a few months ago, um, and Seth Alexander at MIT, Paula Valent at Bowdoin College, they all worked for him. And their returns have actually are better than his, yeah. um, I mean, especially if you look at the long term. Right. So um, his model will persist, but again, not everybody can get into the same types of funds, and some of those accolades. They all go in on similar funds together because there's this alumni network. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, for anyone who wants to understand the investing world, some of the ins and outs, and also understand some of the characters that populate it, this is a must read. Drake Bennett, Janet Lauren, along with Michael McDonald, they wrote the story How David Swenson Made Yale Fabulously Rich. It's one of the most read, not surprisingly, on the Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, when I heard of the passing of T. Boom Pickens, my mind immediately went to a story from the early 80s in Texas Monthly. It was written by Joe No Sarah, our colleague, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, creator of The Shrink Next Door, so many things. This was a relationship that carried across almost four decades, Joe. Your friendship uh, with Boone Pickens. Put him in a nutshell for us, if you can. He was one of the people 
who changed the way business operated. Because when you think about the era prior to the 80s, uh, companies were pretty uh, laid back and shareholders didn't matter that much. And, you know, it was the hostile takeovers of the 80s with him and Carl Icahn and Ron Perlman, a very small handful of others, who really shook up corporate America and who put shareholders front and center. Um, and a lot of the activity, the way the way companies operate today and the way they think about, you know, takeovers, shareholders, mergers, a lot of that began with him. Yeah, I really think about there are a few individuals in our lifetime, right, that really stand out when it comes to the business community. And it was interesting, too, kind of how he evolved from, you know, oil man to wind and energy. Right. Well, yes, that's another. I wanted to say one other thing first, though. What I, what I liked, uh, it was my first business story, 1982. And I, I found just tweeted him, it out. I found him to be this swashbuckler. Yeah. He made business exciting. And if you think about what it was like, what business reporting was like back then, you know, it was like it wasn't a, wasn't a prestige job. It really wasn't. And he helped make business exciting and helped draw people to the idea that, oh, man, I want to cover this stuff. Right. I think that's so true because he was a character, right? And I think for a long time we talked about people who ran – we didn't really talk about the people who ran companies and that's did right. things. The personalities were in part of business reporting. For the most part, for a long time, it was here's how the markets close and <laughs> here right. are the numbers. But he and a few others, but he in particular that's right. changed that's, that's it. That's right. That's right. And, and you were talking about the win, this win stuff. I mean – he was always trying to think of ways to make money and energy. Yeah. You yeah. know, and he was, I mean, as much as an oil man can be an environmentalist, he was. I mean, his, his, his big belief was natural gas, like natural gas can save us. But then, you know, he had these really grandiose schemes about wind and these really grandiose schemes about water, uh, none of which ever came off. But, I mean, he always dreamt big. Well, yeah. that's what I wanted to sort of finish on was this idea that everything he did, he did big, whether it was the deal making in the 80s, everything you've talked about as it relates to his later business career, but even his philanthropy. You know, I mean, Oklahoma State was fundamentally altered, like right down to the locker room by his generosity. So I asked him once, I said, Boone, why did you spend $400 million on Oklahoma State's athletics? And he said, Joe, it's one of the few things I can change while I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. I mean, he fundamentally altered the way people look at that program. He, he also gave a ton to Oklahoma State academics, to, yeah. be, to be fair. To yeah. Be fair. yeah. Well, what's interesting, and Jason and I talked about this earlier, it was really when he was older that he really made the big bucks. That's right. He, he, uh, he went through a period of depression. And, and while he was depressed... He basically lost Mesa Petroleum, his company. Mm -hmm. And he started his uh, hedge fund, also depressed. The hedge fund, in the, in the early days, lost 90% of its value. Right. And then he you know, pulled out of it. He wants to see a shrink. He got on meds, just as so many of us have. And he pulled out of it. And he became, he had never been a billionaire before. 
until he was like 73 or 74 years old. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Carol tweeted out the story. I have to say, and I know I've said this to you before on air and off, Joe, like that story, your 1982 story in in Texas Monthly, I think helped define an era of business journalism and really set the tone uh, for, you know, one of the great characters uh, of our time. We're so fortunate to have you here with us uh, to share those thoughts. And I just highly recommend that story and everything Joe's written. Uh, And you should also download The Shrink Next Door. That's his latest work. It's great as well. Driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. The drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Once again with us, Randy Watts. He's Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist over at William O'Neill and Company. Back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Full disclosure, he did bring us a gift. He brought us cupcakes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this It's like a game changer. I mean, the day just really just took a turn. Come back any time. Exactly. Um, it's an interesting day. We've got some momentum uh, at play here. Equities just off their best levels of the session. I do want to ask you, because we did ask uh, before we got going here, Jason and I just talked about this story that's on the uh, Bloomberg about passive U.S. equity funds eclipsing active uh, for the first time, according to some preliminary data over at Morningstar. I do wonder about the momentum play here in this, right? As more money goes into passive, they perform better, so on and so forth, which attracts more money. So what is there a caveat or is there something that you think about when you look at uh, these flows and this shift? It, it, is, it is something we think about. I think it's one of the things that's helped large cap stocks relative to small cap. As we know, large cap stocks are basically at all-time highs mm-hmm. and small cap are still you know, significantly below their all-time highs. Uh, you know, pa- a lot of passive investing that follows an index is actually really, you know, in some ways, a momentum strategy. As something gets bigger in the index, they want to buy more of it. As something falls in the index, they want to sell it. So I do think it exacerbates underlying fundamental moves. And so does it change the way that you think about the market, especially in, when you're talking about large caps versus small caps, does, does it change anything about the way you may think about deploying money or advise people about deploying money? I think one of the things it, it tells you is that technicals do matter right. and that you have to be aware, even if you have a fundamental view on something, it can overshoot where you think it should be, both on the upside and the downside. And so I think you have to respect those trends and that momentum. What do you think about the market kind of moving back towards kind of its all-time highs again? I think we, you know, we had told clients this summer that if the market was to really have a big move here, the market was probably going to have to broaden out. The market was pretty narrow for a lot of the summer. Mm-hmm. You have seen breadth expand. As we sit here today, 66% of S&P 500 stocks are above their 50-day moving average, and 72% are above their 200-day. If you rewind about a month ago, those were both below 50%. When the market's really humming, both those figures are above 50, and it's also really changed and improved greatly on NASDAQ. Right now on NASDAQ, 54% of stocks are above their 50-day. That's a big improvement. That number had been languishing in the 30%. Uh, you know, if you rewind a month. That's a healthier market. It's a healthier market. It's broadened out. Obviously, this week, there's been a violent shift 
from sort of momentum growth into value. Yeah. I think the jury's still out on whether or not that move is going to continue. The key to that move is the U.S. economy hanging in there. If people are feeling better about the economy, those value and cyclical stocks can can really keep doing better. But if but if it seems like the economy's you know starting to slow or, or stall out, then I think growth is going to reexert itself. So, can you help us understand from a technical perspective, or even just from your, your market maven perspective that you've honed over these many years, this dichotomy that we're trying to figure out between cautious businesses and enthusiastic consumers? Uh, th- Absolutely. So really, the consumer is driven by two things. Jobs. If you think about jobs, when when you're north of about 105,000 on the job ads, that means you're adding jobs. 105,000, about the break-even point for the population growth of the Mm -hmm. country. Uh, So right now, the last number was 130,000. That was a little bit light versus versus what people were expecting, but it's still a good number. Jobs are still plentiful. The second thing is average hourly earnings. Right now, they're growing a little bit north of 3%. As long as jobs and average hourly earnings or income for the consumer can hang in there, I think the economy can be okay. Consumer spending is 68% of the U.S. economy. But if job growth slows or wages start to head down, then I do think the economy is going to run into, into some trouble for, for two reasons. One is we don't have a lot of desire politically to do a lot of fiscal stimulus. Right. And, and, and the second right. is business spending is running down right now because people aren't sure what the rules they're playing but under the, are. But that, to Jason's point, like why is it that consumers are like, I feel pretty good, got a job, I'm out there spending, but yet, you know, CEO after CEO, Randy, you feel like they're holding back. They're watching the U.S.-China trade war. They're holding back on CapEx. They're holding back on a lot of things. And I do wonder about, like, how do you make sense of that? The way I think about it is... Because if got- I'm an employee and I work at some place and I'm seeing my company saying, you know, we're not going to build this or we're not going to invest in that, wouldn't, I, wouldn't that start to trickle down that I think, well, is that going to then ultimately mean maybe my job is at risk? I think it absolutely will. I think we have a little bit of wiggle room right now while the consumer is still strong, but I don't think this kind of uncertainty about how businesses should deploy capital can last forever. So, you know, we're hopeful that some kind of resolution can happen on the trade front before job growth and, and, and income growth really slow down. And so what will really, you know, you mentioned uh, wages, unemployment or employment. Uh, what's out there that other than those two things, and maybe there isn't anything that could really uh, make the consumer nervous? Uh, I think uh, what, what can make the consumer nervous? I think an escalation of the trade war yeah. would, be, it would be an issue. I think uh, if companies start to really curtail hiring, like like Carol said, because they're not sure what their capital spending plans are, I think that could be an issue. I, I, I think you know it's it's pretty it's pretty evident what what the what the factors are. Right, Arshantanan has a story. It's out on the Bloomberg, but it talks about in some parts of the country you're kind of already seeing signs of recession because of the trade war. There are companies that are being hit directly. They're paying more for raw materials. They're hitted. They're being hit with tariff costs, and so the, it is certainly impacting some pockets. Uh, around the country. Let's go then to your investment play, because this is something that I feel like we are hearing increasingly. People say, well, if you're going to invest, look for companies that you've got a dividend on. So we found that we did a bunch of work on this recently. We found basically two things. One, you don't want to buy a stock just because of the dividend. Mm-hmm. We went back and looked at stocks over the last 12 years, and we found that companies that had high dividends but whose earnings were flat to shrinking underperformed the market. The stocks that really do well, and it's about 10% of the S&P, are companies that have a higher than market dividend yield and are also growing their earnings 8% or more. There's about 53 stocks in, in the S&P 500 that, that, are, that do that. And 
there's some big names. There are names like Home Depot's in there, Paychex, LAM Research, the semiconductor equipment company, Amgen, the large biotech mm-hmm. company. So if you can grow your dividend every year and you can also grow your earnings, those stocks do well over time and historically they outperform the market. And so is there a consistency, just about 30 seconds left, among the names other than their dividends? Is that they're in one sort of basket that you would normally look at sectorally or or otherwise? Uh, I'd say they tend to be market leaders in their space. They tend to be companies with high market share, good balance sheets that are well run. That's really the most common factor. Great advice and great thoughts on the market as always. Randy, thank you so much. And that's not just because you brought us cupcakes, but, <laughs> but it does help. Thanks <laughs> no, for Just ha- kidding. Love talking with you, Jason. And I always do. Randy Watts, he's Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist over at William O'Neill & Company uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah.